When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We have to act now. It's, it's, there's no time for any delay. The rest of you supposed Republicans, why are you so quiet on Cruz and Hawley? Trump is coming for this party. This is going to be the Trump party, and it's going to have, if they don't do something, it's going to have consequences forever. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the series finale. I'm Virginia Heffernan. As we bid farewell to Trumpcast and blessedly to Donald Trump, it's a reflective moment for not just history, but for what some academics call historiography, the study of how history is told and written. So this finale has two only somewhat sentimental parts. Jay Rosen, the ranking media critic, joins me to talk about failures and successes of the media in writing this janky first draft of history with highs and lows, a first draft made jankier still because the media has been stalked and enslaved to Twitter. It's been relentlessly deconstructed, addled, reformed, and turned brittle and defensive in response to Me Too, the exigencies and insults of an autocratic administration, and of course, new and more consequential forms of speaking truth to power, including podcasts, and even giving the powerful the hook and denying them the center stage they feel is their birthright. Just so you missed the code, that's how I describe cancel culture, where cancellation in the private sector is among the highest forms of protected speech. And on the exigencies of Trump, the relatively new turn-of-the-century fetish for neutrality among reporters just did not cut it in Trump times. Sometimes we had some journalists in major outlets seeming to root for, as the British say, the fire against the fire brigade pussy-grabbing and police brutality against civil rights, martial law against the rule of law, and of course, Trump against American democracy. So Jay Rosen is joining me to talk about all that. And then I join me, or rather, I join Trumpcast's divine producer, Melissa Kaplan, to figure out what the hell Trumpcast has even been doing all this time. So that part, if you'll forgive us, is kind of Trumpcastcast, a meta-reflection on what this project has been and what we hope that this nearly five-year audio document will do to enliven and serve how the story of our times is told. Jay, welcome to Trumpcast. Well, thank you very much, Virginia. On the one hand, I am kicking myself for not having had you earlier in the show. But on the other, I'm glad to give you kind of a guest of honor position where we're really trying to kind of shake our heads and say, what the hell happened here with this catastrophic presidency? And specifically, I hope you can tell us, what do you think what happened to the media over this time? How did our immune system rally? We don't talk too much about that, right? Mm -hmm. And how did we, how were we kind of defeated? And what might sort of reform look like? These are sort of the three, the three parts of my opening question. 
I think at the very end, the American press discovered that it cannot remain neutral on democracy itself. And I think really sort of at the last moment, maybe even after the last moment, meaning after the election, when Trump tried to overturn the election, journalists discovered that they have to stand up for democracy itself, otherwise we could lose it. But that took a long time. Mm-hmm. And it should have been something that became clear years before that. Yeah. And before that time, the way I understood these events was that the practices of the American press, the political journalists especially, rest on certain assumptions about how public officials, candidates, presidents will behave. And Donald Trump, as your podcast has shown many times, broke all of those assumptions, which means he broke the practices that rest on them. But it was very hard for our journalists to admit that. uh, And it's very hard for them to come up with new practices on the fly. And so in those moments and situations where existing practices in the press fit the case, I think journalists did very well. So an example would be investigating something Donald Trump wanted to keep secret, like his taxes. Eventually, they cracked that case, and we had very good investigative journalism about Donald Trump's taxes because that situation of potentially damaging information that a politician is trying to keep secret Mm -hmm. fits uh, others that the press is familiar with. Mm -hmm. But there was all these other situations, uh, like, for example, how do you shame a politician that has no shame, where there wasn't existing wisdom or existing practices to deal with it. And in those situations, I think there was a long and difficult learning curve. And that's why people got so frustrated with journalists. So that's sort of my overview is Trump didn't obey these assumptions that we had about candidates and office holders. Mm -hmm. Lots of practices in the press rested on those assumptions. That was an intellectual crisis, although no one called it that. And when the problem fit the existing tools that journalists had, they did well. When it didn't, they did poorly. And then at the very end, they kind of like learned something about defending democracy. And now we have to see if they carry that over into 2021 or not. What's strange is we seem to learn, uh, some of us seem to learn and forget, learn and forget all the way through. So the learning curve looked strange. I mean, I remember... My parents debated whether, remember Huffington Post had this kind of in its coverage during the election and during the primary in 2015, 2016, kind of a, a like a warning, like Twitter puts on things that they can't in any way endorse Donald Trump because of his history of xenophobia. And I mean, it was like this really massive smoking kills mm-hmm. label on all kinds of political coverage to just say, you know, this this is in a special category, in a, like has to be in a hazmat that bag, basically, um, any coverage of Trump as though he were a normal candidate. And I remember Ezra Klein had a, had a this is not normal video that was just to establish a kind of baseline that we had departed from. And that was in the very beginning. But then it's another day and donuts to make, and you have to report on things that are happening. And it's like, you're, like your brain forgets, you know, it comes to a crisis at some point, you wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night and think to yourself, I think, I think uh, Jared Yates Sexton said he'll be sautéing something or and suddenly 
Donald Trump is the president of the United States. And you would just think he colluded with Russia. I don't care about hair splitting. The guy colluded with Russia. He stole the election. He's obstructed justice a million times. Then he tried to do it again with this election. And then he tried to do it this other time. He's killing children, locking up children. And he's letting us, our country be ravaged by whatever. There's no debate here. And yet we're walking through our lives trying to talk about things in normal declarative sentences with Mm -hmm. reported facts. You know, we're way, way, way off the, you know, out past the far shore here. Yeah. And how do we even talk and, you know, use the things we learned in journalism school or the things we learned on the beat? It's just the lessons go out the window. Yes. There's a name for this problem, which is normalization. Yeah. (laughs) And the reason this happens is that political journalists, especially in the grip of what I've called over the years, the savvy style of doing journalism, right? Yeah, yep. Are constantly trying to show us and themselves that they understand how the real world works as opposed to civic book theory, right? As opposed to sentimentalism about American democracy, as opposed to what you learned in junior high school, They know how things really work. And it's essentially an ironic um, sensibility uh, that generates their sort of position within politics. So when you have this situation we lived through for five years of extraordinary things without precedent, dangerous things, disgusting things, things undermining of American democracy happening every day, there's a tendency for the savvy part of, of journalists to say, yeah, but you know what? That's the new normal. You know, mm-hmm. that's realistically, mm-hmm. this is what's going on, right? Yeah. So there's, yeah. This te- there's this tension between two different kinds of realism. One is sort of the low day-to-day realism, like that's the new normal, which is another phrase for this problem, right? Mm-hmm. That's the new normal. Realistically, that's the new normal. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but there's a, a, a tension between that kind of realism and a kind of larger realism that says, realistically, American democracy can't go on like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? And, yeah. and I think journalists were caught in between those two realisms. And at the very end, like I said, in that second week of November, when it looked like he was really trying to steal the election, they switched over (laughs) to this deeper, more profound realism. So you really did see that as a moment. The fact that they didn't entertain any, like didn't give any quarter to the fraudulent fraud charges or, you know, the merits of any kind of Supreme Court challenge. Yes. And they they would not both sides. It It was something to un-both sidesable. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which is not a word at all and shouldn't actually be uttered. But yeah, I saw that happening and I wrote about it as what I called a democratic breakthrough hmm. because I was talking about it in the context of Masha Gestin's notion of an, an autocratic attempt, which is how she describes what the Trump years were. And an autocratic attempt is is when an authoritarian real uh, ruler or leader tests the institutions of democracy and tries to break them, right? Mm-hmm. And the sec- that's the first stage in an autocratic takeover, she says. And the second stage is 
uh, an autocratic breakthrough. So I tried to say that this is kind of like a democratic breakthrough hmm. for the press at the very end when they really should have had that moment long before. I mean, it felt like for whatever reason, people I knew in, um, you know, some of my past employers in mainstream media did not like the sort of Twitter verses and the federal prosecutors who kind of became the face of this story, former federal prosecutors that were suddenly everybody's favorite guests. They didn't like the fervor over the Mueller report, the Mueller investigation, Russia. For some reason, that curdled as something that only the Cassandras and the people with, quote, Trump derangement syndrome were obsessed with, the ins and outs of it. And that it was, you know, the far left would say it was Russophobic. And sometimes that's when, when I I was critical of the Trump administration for this and that, even small things, Russia today would do a hit piece on me. You know, even small things like the like some silly, you know, something Don Jr. did. And I was getting the Russia Today responses. And then you felt like you were really in, you know, potentially some kind of gaslit situation where you just couldn't say at a dinner party, even to a journalist who've covered you know, crises in Cambodia, crises in the Philippines, you couldn't say this is really incredibly dangerous. You know, it's like the Sarah Kenziors or God forbid the Louise Menches or the Seth Abramsons just started to seem like, you know, they were kind of, you couldn't quite entertain things that dark and, and apocalyptic. And that was a very strange, just hearing it's not that bad. There's not real evidence about the about Russia collusion. Mm -hmm. Don't get so excited about this. And there's something to Trump derangement syndrome. Why don't we write about something else? That's what Barry Weiss said when she resigned from the New York Times. I got to say, that didn't not affect me as a journalist, you know? Yeah, a couple of things going on there. One is it's a very comfortable role for political journalists to be the ones who are de-exciting people mm. because it fits with what I call the savvy style. The, the savvy style is always like, you're cool. You expected that you're an ironist. So nothing gets you too upset. You're trying to be realistic, right? You don't want to be um, overboard. You, you don't want to be uh, a kook because you're grounded, right? This is all part of the, of the savvy style. Then there's another thing going on there that I've never been able to write about, but I think professional journalists in the United States in the mainstream model are always trying to establish identity by pushing off against people that they define themselves against. And the most common definer is the ideologue, you know, the person who's like full of fervor and coats the case with ideological paint, right, to, to make everything fit into their system. Mm -hmm. And that can be fine. I mean, that's often a good way to kind of check the excesses of movements and ideological positions. But what happens when what is going on actually fits with what the ideological critics are saying. Mm -hmm. right? In a situation like that, mainstream journalists will often define themselves against it because they don't want to be associated with, yeah. <laughs> with, with, a, with a kind of a style that they are always trying to, to define themselves by, by separating from that style. And I think that is what's happening in those situations. But if you look back, Russia really was really bad. You know, it was Watergate bad. It was it was at least that bad. <laughs> and there were people who said that, including Carl Bernstein. 
Yeah, right. That's right. And then he was sort of moved into the category of not Woodward. You know, Woodward like held the spot for, I did some event with uh, Slow Burn with Woodward. And, you know, he just, he said, we're not going to have tapes in this case with Donald Trump. It was before the Mueller report. It's very different. You know, yeah. Nixon, it, you know, Nixon went down in this very specific way for this very specific crime obstruction. And, you know, we did it and journalists did it and they investigated. And right now, you know, I'm poking around in his first book, Fear, right, was pretty much palace intrigue and did not... You know, I can't even remember the the revelations of some of those books. You know, they were very low level. And yet, for a while, we could distract ourselves with kind of chew toys from Michael Wolff's book or from Bob Woodward's book that sort of blotted out a common sense take on this thing that was, you know, he needs to be impeached immediately, right? Which was like yeah. almost right out of the gate. And that was just so strange that, it, I mean, I don't know that there was, I know after the fact, there was, there's always lots of plowing over what Mussolini's private life or Berlusconi's or Hitler's relationships with the Nazi brass. But I don't think it distracted from the war at the time. It seems like it should come after that mm -hmm. you start to parse through did Iv Ivanka have any say? You know, that's after the fire's out, right? Right. But instead, we got a lot of palace intrigue passing as speaking truth to power, you know? Yeah, a lot and too much, in my opinion. And, and the whole attempt to sort of get inside the White House and, and do the day-to-day, -day, you know, who's dumping on whom, all of that could have been avoided. But I think part of the reason that that kind of journalism went on and continued long after it should have is a real reluctance among political journalists to decide what they are for and what they are willing to defend. Mm -hmm. And over a long period of time when there was a kind of American consensus in politics and consensus practices that were built on top of that political consensus, mm -hmm. you could have journalists who essentially said, it's not our job to be for or against anything. Mm -hmm. We just report the news, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that approach, that philosophy was actually fit to the last five years. You couldn't go into it with that attitude. And so that's why I continue to try and write press criticism that insisted that journalists have to know what they're willing to defend mm -hmm. or they can't report this story. So an example, mm -hmm. do you think it's important to protect the right to vote and that people should vote? <laughs> like, yeah. is more voting good? And is that a premise of your political coverage that everybody should vote and here's the information you need to make an intelligent vote? Mm -hmm. Or is it kind of like not your business to decide whether intimidating people out of the vote, mm -hmm. good or bad? Is Are you kind of like neutral towards voting, yeah. right? Yeah. Are you neutral towards whether presidents should lie? Are you neutral about the destruction of democratic institutions? Mm -hmm. All these kinds of questions that were always there. I wrote a book about them in 1999 mm -hmm. called What Are Journalists mm -hmm. For? With a question mark, right? Uh, all these questions, which are always there, became like crisis questions Yes. in the last five years. What are you willing to defend? And that's why I say they had a democratic breakthrough at the end 
because they were willing to defend the results of that election. This Democratic breakthrough thing is really interesting. And I hadn't, I don't think I'd fully seen your threads on this. But do you think that that happened? Who started that? Because let's like go back to like DeJoy and the efforts to obstruct the U.S. Postal Service, which just seemed unconscionable over the summer. Mm -hmm. So there were like efforts in advance. Right that seemed to have full bar support. We now know that Bill Barr backed off the second it came to the erroneous fraud charges of Trump after and wouldn't kind of go that far. But in advance, it looked like Trump was going to bring all the weight of the McConnells and the bars and his Republican apparatus to voter suppression on just the most dastardly scale that we've ever seen and get people who were rightfully afraid of COVID not to vote at all and just even to muck up the U.S. post office. And I didn't really see, I saw a Twitter rally. That was the first time they had not come out to say, you know, this is above the law or against the law, or this is incitement, or this is defamatory all this time with Trump. Even this is just vulgar, or even, you know, whatever it is, or this is, this is Nazi speech, none of that. But they started even before the election, to come out and say, this looks like voter suppression. But I don't, I don't remember seeing in the pages of the New York Times someone kind of like really drawing a hard line on, say, the post office thing. It, you know, it seemed to me a little bit that that false equivalence and let's give it all a hearing and, you know, did DeJoy really mean to destroy these machines or not? And not even thinking about the anti-democratic implications of that, but simply wrestling with what actually happened. But what was the tipping point for all that? Like, were there some mainstream media places, not MSNBC, but in advance of the election, who started to say things have gotten really dire? Well, I think what happened is, you may recall this, in August, or maybe first week in September, Ben Smith wrote a column about the networks getting prepared for election night itself. And he was shocked to discover that they were kind of blasé about it and thought, no problem, we've done this a million times. We don't really think there's going to be any crisis. And he was kind of surprised that they were so cavalier. And this was like three months out. And I think after that, lots of parts of American democracy and, and sort of civil society started to worry about the same thing, meaning we're probably going to have a very unusual election. We're probably not going to know who the winner is that night. All kinds of things could go wrong. We really have to start preparing for that. Mm -hmm. And there was between September and November, there was like a mobilization of, of civic institutions. Mm. And the news media was part of that. I know because I participated in some conference calls where people who were part of the press are explaining what they're preparing for mm -hmm. to like good government groups and people, things like this. Yep. And I think a kind of seriousness overtook, especially the networks during this time. Mm -hmm. And they began to do some serious planning. They always do serious planning, but this time you had all these intervening variables that were different, like the COVID crisis, right? The fact mm -hmm. that people aren't going to vote in the same way that they did, the likelihood that we, we wouldn't have a winner, which happened right oh, that mm -hmm. night, etc. And then the possibility of 
real violence and mm-hmm. disruption and like a crisis, right? Yeah. So I think that work had some effect and it kind of like made people more sober. And there was there was a kind of turn. I don't think anyone knew it at the time, but there was sort of a turn in opinion during that interval and things became really serious. And that is one of the reasons why on November, what was it, the 7th or 9th, when he made that speech, basically just trying to overturn the results of the election. Yeah. Yeah, that's why at that moment that the buildup to the election kicked in and and that's when this democratic breakthrough happened. But it could end up being, you know, a temporary thing. We don't know. I mean, it could easily go back to both sides journalism and, you Hmm. know, playing the Democrats off against the Republicans and trying to pretend that we're still in a sort of a normal state. Mm -hmm. You know, we could we could see a reversion back to what had become normal before Trump. Thank you very much for being here, Jay. As usual, extremely stimulating. Thanks for inviting me. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, Trumpcast. It's Melissa Kaplan, the producer of the show. Seeing as how this is our last interview of the series, I wanted to take this opportunity to turn the mic around and check in with our great MC, Virginia Heffernan. It's fitting that Jay Rosen was our last show guest, because we've been reflecting on our own time in this fierce, unforgiving media landscape that enabled and often fortified the horrors of Trump's regime. Virginia and I, and the many other hosts and guests of this show, have worked to safeguard and rebuild our collective sanity, and we're proud to say that we stuck to our resolve and stayed until it was over. And now that it's over, we need to make sure it doesn't happen again. Virginia, welcome to Trumpcast. Thanks for having me, Melissa. So glad to have you on. <laughs> it's been a long road for you. I only began producing the show in 2018, but you've been here since the show began in 2016. You came to the show after having deeply studied The Apprentice, which takes a special person to do. And then on that fateful night when Trump won the election and Trumpcast founder Jacob Weisberg famously turned white, You found out you were going to be here for a while. So my first question for you is, how have you kept from getting sick? Wow. Okay. I like this. And surprisingly, it's not an uncommon question. And I think it's a question we all ask ourselves, right? So yes, Jacob turned white that night and everyone had all kinds of physical symptoms at our Hillary coronation our neo-lib Hillary coronation at, uh, in Brooklyn, um, where we literally had song and dance numbers to celebrate what we assumed would be Hillary Clinton's victory in 2016. And Mike Pesca and I were on stage. Michelle Goldberg was on stage, Ariel Levy. We had comedians. And as kind of the news fell, and we didn't even have the maps up on the uh, behind us because we were so so confident, um, confident in a way that you know every people got blamed for later, and that failure 
in the media to perceive what might happen became something we had to repent for for a long time that cost us, cost everyone a lot of confidence in what we um, had imagined the world to be, right? And as for the physical symptoms, lots of people drank a lot that night. Uh, Dar Williams, the the musician, play, was playing on stage and she and I came backstage and for lack of something else to do, hugged each other. And I, I couldn't cry that night, but I did manage with Mike to make the show go on. I don't know what it felt like, but because we had to change course so much, the primary objective seemed to be to keep the show going. So I looked at the audience and realized, and I think people realized about their friends and their relatives, that some of them might have voted for Trump, that all along we might have deceived ourselves. And so I looked out on the audience and I thought, maybe there's some Trump supporters here. You know, maybe they came to watch election results and they're happy with the results. Now, granted, it was in Brooklyn, but I asked everyone if they felt like the bride had been shot in the face that night, because that's how I felt. Um, I was so fixated on Hillary. And there was like this nod of assent. And I sort of realized that there would be a group of people, and I took some consolation from this, who would share the sh- first the shock and then the commitment to what initially felt like a kind of resistance. There's no other word for it. So Jacob asked me to do the show um, as a co-host with him and Jamal Bowie, and then we brought on Yasha Monk, and we brought on Leon Krause, and then the show changed, and and we brought on you, and it slowly came down to just me as we got through the Mueller report, the impeachment, and all the sort of blows and surprises of the last two years. And there have been endless blows and surprises. I mean, I can remember that first year and the shock and awe tactics of Trump and his creepy whisperer, Steve Bannon. And I don't think I slept at all in that first 100 days. And I wasn't the only one feverishly scrolling Twitter in fear. And yeah, if you were a journalist, there was way too much to do, too many stories to cover and so many angles to address that it was madness for just one outlet to get everything. So we all took a different station or corner, I want to share with our listeners how we found our own corner as we covered these stories on Trumpcast, how we chose our guests and what we wanted to accomplish with the show as things got crazier. So talk a little bit about that. Well, I I gotta say, Melissa, you I think you know this, but I really credit you. I, should I just tell them about the Normcore thing? Go for it. I've got to, right? So the show was born, um, you know, was created by by Jacob Weisberg, who's just a truly extraordinary journalist and executive who now has his own podcast company. And it was a little bit of a goof. He had done books of Bushisms in the past, and he had a really nice light touch when it came to finding almost um, ironic angles in um, in dealing with the latest affront to the polity. And so I think he took me on for those jokey reasons. But because he's so established as a journalist, he became regarded as a kind of norm core figure. He had been at the New Republic, unlike, you know, I had started as a, a you know, 
did, I've said so many times on this show, uh, done a PhD in English and started as someone who wrote about television and culture. And I was ex-New York Times, which always carries with it a little bit of what happened there kind of kind of stigma. So I didn't fit the norm core bill. But I will say when we brought in Yasha Monk and Leon Krause to make things more norm core, I sort of thought, you know what? I was born in New Hampshire and consider myself a pretty, you know, ethnically Irish American, straight down the line American. No one's ever thought uh, to, you know, to my disappointment that, you know, I might be South Asian or I might be Mexican, you know, English is my first language. So I sort of saw myself as normcore, but suddenly we had dashing Leon Krause and highly cerebral Yasha Monk occupying, uh, German Yasha Monk and, and Mexican Leon Krause occupying that normcore spot. So anyway, rather than insist on our own normcority, you you who are non-binary, who have a incredibly untraditional background, said the best thing about this show is going to be that we're not normcore and where we decided that normcore represented a kind of very masculine approach to politics. We decided to take a more and, you know, not to re-inscribe gender roles, but we decided to take a more sensory, emotional approach. And it sort of evolved between us. And you're a director and a performer of um, a very cool kind of outside the norm, like, you know, sort of Portlandia. I don't know how exactly to describe it, Mm. but uh, much... Oh, she rolls her eyes. Okay. Not Portlandia, but but just Melissiania kind of performance. And you have a beautiful singing voice. And so whenever I had the like non-normcore idea to burst into song, you were there completely cheering me on and also auto-tuning and teaching me a little bit how to sing. I never auto-tuned you, just for the record. Oh, is that right? All right. Well, anyway, I don't know if it's right brain or something, but we decided to combine that with, while we were taking on, you know, kind of demanding, gritty, granular subjects of, of Trump. This God, this feels like egotistical, but I have to tell myself like Ezra Klein would do this, right? He would like own that center stage Ezra Klein show. So anyway, we're trying to, you know, we're owning it in a kind of, in a phallogocentric way, like we used to say (laughs) in graduate school. (laughs) Oh my God. My boyfriend, um, Richard is laughing at that. But anyway, that's one of the truths of the show that we we decided to kind of work emotionally from the margins while covering these bullseye center stage subjects. I think you're right. As female-bodied people, we have more work to do just to embody our stance. Yeah. Jay Rosen just talked about the both sizing and how political journalists normalized a lot of the Trump nonsense because they wanted to project a confidence and understanding and seem to not be emotionally affected or even invested yeah and you see what that chaos that false confidence caused when you have a president who without any sort of conscience will work to rewrite the story in his favor so feverishly you get what we had which was a back and forth with him seth abramson religiously tallied those lies yeah yeah and all the crimes and all the crimes i think he has the number and it doesn't matter how many times we refuted him Trump would just double down because of his mental illness. Yes. So confronting, right, confronting lies, confronting forms of psychosis with facts, 
just as we let them pile up at the Washington Post with people like Seth, but we also, so we chose to kind of opt out of the binary, you know, of, of truth and lies. We non-binary journalism. Non, we were non-binary journalism. That's exactly it. You know what this brings to mind is I real I just realized before the inauguration, I'm I'm seeing January 17th, 2017. So before Trump's inauguration, um, we I did a show with Alexei Kavalov. I we had him later in 2019. He's a journalist based in Russia. And he had for a long time covered Vladimir Putin's press conferences. And he was seeing some of the early signs of what the uh, Sean Spicer press conferences might sound like. And he wanted to warn American journalists about the problem of both sidesism. And he's the one that introduced me to the phrase both sidesism, that he said, you know, every time you ask Putin about something like Currently, he didn't mention this, but the quashing of Alexei Navalny, the opposition candidate, and by quashing, I mean poisoning, I mean imprisoning, I mean torturing. Kavalov explained that Putin would take something like that and say, well, they do the same thing in the West, right? And we started to hear Trump say that early on about interference in elections. He and people on the far left would would often say, you know, America's just as bad. And Kavalov warned journalists against taking that on the chin and just take, allowing that to be an answer. And that is something that we decided, you know, it's not as though as journalists and we're not part of the White House press corps and I know the tension in that room can get high, but we certainly saw some journalists and we tried to do it here from our peanut gallery, not counter with facts, but counter with a broader view, draw a bigger circle around these subjects and critique both sidesism rather than respond to the bunk answers from Putin and Trump. Right. And I mean, we've spoken with journalists who are in that room, knowing what that situation is. It's just impossible when the agenda is set against them. Yeah. I mean, when you watched Yamichi, when you watched April Ryan deal with the president one on one and try to flack for his cruelty to reporters and his efforts to silence them in the moment. And oh, this brings me to the interesting challenge posed by people like our guest, Anthony Scaramucci, who, like Donald Trump, actually talk over their interlocutors. And I mean, Melissa, let's let's try it out right now. Okay. Ask your question and I'm going to talk over you. Go ahead. So, Virginia, who are some of your favorite guests? I don't have favorites. I don't that's I wouldn't pick favorites. That is exactly what Anthony Scaramucci did to me. And it is very, see how you stopped? It is so hard to run out the clock on the yelling party. Yeah. So I would just tell myself, keep talking, keep talking, keep talking. He'll run out of breath at some point. And we had to play that overlapping sound. And the fact that that's a technical problem, overlapping sound, crosstalk, um, it's just, you know, it's just not done on NPR. Right. So what happens is usually and understandably, the person asking the questions drops out so that they can have the nice question answer format. But in that one in particular, I just like committed to not being run over by him. And I think it worked fairly well, but I can't even tell you how counterintuitive it was. But it was very interesting and 
that was one where I stayed up all night saying, how would I talk to a Trumpite? And by the way, he, of course, was a reformed Trumpite by then. But how would I talk to him? You know, we all kind of fantasize about how we talk to Trump. So this was the closest I came to someone with his style. And that makes me want to ask you (laughs) about your kind of journey around dealing with the trauma inflicted by the president and how it mirrored, if I may, some of the trauma you'd suffered in your own life. And you can be as vague or specific about this as you want. I talk about this. Actually, it's something I get asked a lot, the same as you, is how were you able to stomach doing a show about (laughs) Donald Trump? And I get told a lot, you seem to be so positive. You have such a cheery disposition. And, you know, that's that's all well and good. And I want to project a nice vibe for everybody because it's it counters the awfulness happening. And it's not that I'm not experiencing that or denying it at all. It's all happening to me and I am being affected in my own way. But I may have had a special training <laughs> due to yeah. my childhood. And I've, I've talked about this with you a lot. And we've had guests talk about this too. That Off the mic, yeah. Yeah, Trump is just like this eternal, mentally ill father figure who, who is just abusive. I remember that on one recent show, you even said that like, mom finally stopped dating the guy who hits us when she's not around. And, yeah. you know, I... I grew up in a household with a with a dad who had I don't like to diagnose, but the you know, there are a lot of there were a lot of kind of those borderline personality disorder symptoms, mm-hmm. a lot of that bipolarness, a lot of that when I was growing up, therapists would help me describe it as like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Like he would seem yeah. completely sweet and, you know, the most sincere person. And that's where he differed from Trump. He actually he did have a uh, conscience about th- things he did. He felt bad. He felt remorse. Mm-hmm. But then he would do horrible shit anyway. And he would, he was emotionally abusive anyway. And it was just very confusing, very mixed messages all the time. And I was always talked over and shouted over. Like I couldn't get a word yeah. in. And that's like that right. Scaramucci thing. Like I just was taught like, don't speak because it's not going to yeah. matter. Just save your energy. And, you know, uh, this reality, he dictates this reality. And if you want to survive this, and I, I tried to leave and I couldn't leave. But so yeah. while I was while I was still in the house growing up as a high schooler, I did what I could to survive it. And, you know, because I couldn't, no matter what I did, I couldn't change the situation. So I just had to just laugh about it. And he would have, like, I would look at his own sense of humor and I would just find healthier ways to use that sense of humor. And yeah. like- Laugh at the abs- the utter absurdity of the situation, but also, you know, find find where the truth was, reconceal where he didn't see the truth and where my, tr- my truth was and where the truth of the situation was, and then just learn to heal from that. And I got to tell you, Virginia, it was so much work. It was so much emotional labor I had to do growing yeah, up that, yeah, like, yeah. these days, like, if you wonder why I don't suffer fools now, that's why. It's just so yeah. much work. You know, no one should suffer fools, but it's just, no, it's like, it's why, you know, when I came to be producer of Trump cast, it was like, okay, I'm taking this emotional hazmat suit back out of the closet Mm -hmm. and I'm taking it for a spin. And, you know, it's bittersweet to end the show, but I'm couldn't be happier (laughs) that I don't have to wear this hazmat suit anymore and that we're not afflicted by 
Trauma. Yes. I mean, it is. I think they had a program. I tried to do a school program so that kids could acquire grit and soon discovered that grit is only a function of trauma. You can't teach it in schools. You just, I mean, unless you're willing to just push kids down the stairs and shout at them and administer trauma deliberately. <sighs> so, you know, it's a, it's a it's a mixed blessing trauma, and it's it's obvious. I mean, it's a mostly you know, it's not something you'd wish on anyone or you'd ever want to teach. On the other hand, those people who have suffered it, and I, it's astounding how much off the mic people had described Trump as very similar to an overbearing, um, aggressive, sometimes violent, angry person in their lives. John D. Domenico. John D. Domenico, who openly said it on the show. There's, and I don't want to, I don't want to name names, but there's um, the son of a preacher man who talked about this. There are people who left home early on to get away from abusive families. One thing to come back to a slightly more normcore guest um, that, that, that has talked not about his, um, not about his own trauma, but about, um, about the idea that some of the best voices on, um, on Trumpcast and 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 on this on the subject of Donald Trump have been people writing from the margins including people who made their names on Twitter who started threading on Twitter because they didn't have a stake in kind of propping up power and they were used to and this is Adam Davidson at the New Yorker I should say who's come on the show to talk about money laundering and he's obviously writing from a giant platform but he was quite open to some of the agitators gadflies socratic question answer and question asks her askers sorry like Sarah Kenzior and even I don't want to push him too hard but we were open to someone like Seth Abramson, who is sometimes kind of shut out of dominant discourse because he is, you know, he does these long threads and he has it brings a different voice, even in some cases because he's a poet, a poet's voice to this. And, you know, when he sold a book, he was able to buy his first car. And, you know, these are people writing without platforms. Molly McHugh has really landed on her feet with a substack called greatpower.us. We had her on the show a lot. Harry Littman, who we had on the show after he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, has landed on his feet with his own podcast, Talking Feds, and also a column in the LA Times. You know, and these people, often we found them on Twitter. We found them because they'd written an op-ed on their own, and we were sort of willing to bring them on for their their perspective. I always remember a South African guest we had, Andres Dutoy. It was before you you came here, but he had written something about how the kind somewhat suspicious resignation of Justice Kennedy from the Supreme Court, which allowed for Brett Kavanaugh's nomination, was the kind of thing that in South Africa you might have missed early on that seemed like a tr- small trivial thing, but opened the door in that case to apartheid. And he saw the same thing potentially happening here. This was before, obviously, the George Floyd protests. And, mm-hmm. you know, he was right on the money predicting that Brett Kavanaugh's rise to the court would damage American life and culture. Yeah. I think I remember that he cried on the show, one of the only guests oh, wow. who's been that emotional. And I think that's what was so moving about that show. Yeah, you can have feelings. It's not going to ruin you to 
share your experience. For those who practice and study journalism, you know that there's a lot that goes into it that, you know, yeah. fact checking, doing the research and balancing that with perspective it's a very specific skill. You know, I think Melville said to write a mighty book, you need to write mighty subject. And I could be wrong, fact check. But, you know, to cover a highly eccentric subject, I think you need an eccentric show and voice. And, you know, I don't want to just be self-congratulatory here. Sarah Canzior's show. Gaslit Nation. And AG, the anonymous government employees show Muller she wrote, which was like a very cool freewheeling show about the Mueller investigation. The books by by Seth Abramson, I don't want to get stuck on that. The even the even the voice of Michael Wolf, who's kind of he's kind of a jerk, but he was able to enter the the White House and kind of hold his own with and work out the sources like Steve Bannon. Then, of course, Ben Wittes, who, who many people would say is quite normcore at Lawfare, um, whom I'm now working with. Um, you know, he had these baby cannons. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> he shot off small a small cannon behind his house and would show that on Twitter every time there was a revelation about Donald Trump. And that was amazing. And we had Lola Oganike covering Omarosa. And we had other voices. Aswan Subsang from the Daily Beast talked about some of the eccentrics, some of the like Motley Crew, the the Falstaffs and the um and the kind of nut jobs around Donald Trump. Yeah. So we had people on the eccentricity beat. And I think that that came in some ways from journalism, not from Trumpcast, but we were definitely a happy home that would allow for the eccentricity in eccentric guests who writing about eccentric subjects. But we also let people let loose on the show. You know, we tried to open them up and guests that we had over and over again, you know, found Trumpcast a place to expound on their interests at length and with their idiosyncrasies in full effect. Yeah, we had a lot of themes that weren't just dead on about Trump. A lot of, something I had yeah. to explain over and over again is we're Trump cast, but we also talked to the conditions created by the Trump administration. It would just be tiresome if we only talked about Donald Trump. But there were a lot of things that Trump was the cause of. We also had some pretty amazing guests who were able to get close to Ivanka and Melania without kind of going native. So they weren't getting anonymous quotes from Jared and Melania. They were just able, in this way that I associate with Vanity Fair, to, they didn't mind, or at least they they had the wardrobe or they had the tone of voice, but they also had the wicked imagination to sit with, at least in the orbit of Melania, and come back and tell the true story. You know what I mean? They they didn't, like, start writing sympathetic stories about her. And I'm thinking, in this case, of Vicki Ward, who wrote about the Kushners, wrote about Javanka. And who we had on Trumpcast Live as well. Remember the live oh, shows? Oh, yes, who we had on Trumpcast Live. You know, and I will say, before she was a CNN stalwart, she had been famously, she was famously, when we had her on, at odds with Vanity Fair because she'd written a profile of Jeffrey Epstein and she had some of the women who accused him of child molestation on 
in the piece. And then it was killed, summarily killed by Graydon Carter after kind of a harassment shakedown by Jeffrey Epstein. And, you know, stories like that were proxy and practice for thinking about about Donald Trump um, and thinking about the crushing of certain kinds of stories around powerful, abusive men. Okay, two other people on that score are Emily Jane Fox. And these are you know, these are women who would be at home on the society pages, but sat there like Emily Dickinson writing notes about, you know, what fools and knaves everyone was. And I loved having them. I loved having them. Oh, and we also had Nina Burley, author of The Trump Women, part of the deal about how these women had entered into a kind of Faustian bargain for which they got money, not knowledge, in exchange and position, I guess, in exchange for their integrity. And Nina was great on that. I want to just say again, these are chic women. They're not a schlubby former federal prosecutors or schlubby academics or just kind of ink-stained wretches from newsrooms. These are women with an extraordinary amount of access. And I thought they were really great on the show. I'm going to miss these visuals that you conjure when you're describing folks. <laughs> well, I think I got ink-stained wretches from Gawker or something. But in any case, yeah, it's a nice way to think about certain of our guests. You know, the changes to us, and me at least, and you can speak for yourself on this, but during the Trump presidency, um, I, I want to say two things about that. One is I... As a as a Hillary passionate and open Hillary Clinton supporter, I know it's somewhat weird to say that now. I was pretty enthralled to neoliberalism as the kind of the air we breathe. You know, I thought of it like capitalism. It was just there, this sort of set of pieties that uh, get embodied in something like Davos. I wasn't included in the private plane set, the Teterborough set, but I just took that kind of technocracy, um, kind of faith in meritocracy for granted. And I've moved really to the left during the show. I've seen the shortcomings of the neoliberalism, Obamaism, and um, and also realized its shortcomings as a critique of rising autocracy. There's just not a good place to stand in in Obama politics now that really see racism evaporating or or at least being subdued. That became clear when you saw video after video of cops beating up black men and obviously the murder of George Floyd, that that's not the truth. And the idea of that we were perpetually a land of progress, I almost can't touch the part of me that believed that. So that was really interesting. And the second part, and you really brought this, Melissa, is when you came in with your, you know, unconventional childhood, your overachieving adulthood, which is astonishing, I realized that we needed to jump up on getting less conventional guests. And, you know, I would have called that more diverse guests. And I think there was an imperative to get diverse guests by that name. But diversity as a kind of just, you know, little affectation, right, of, a, of an elitist show is really not what I wanted. I wanted lots of female guests and guests of color because they're better guests. Yes. They're better guests. 
And they because they can code switch because they could see Trump from these the positions they inhabited that that they knew well because they spoke and recognized Trumpian English, but they also spoke other dialects and idioms. They just were better guests. Who better to comment on autocracy than someone who has felt the lash of it? You know, and that's why we really tried to have ultimately decided to make the show more about those voices. I think you're absolutely right. And I'm really glad and proud of the work we did to make sure that we heard from those voices. You pay lip service to things like diversity and, you know, all of that. But you have to really be willing to risk being uncomfortable and hearing things Mm -hmm. you don't want to hear. And I can't think of people really being uncomfortable during the Obama era. Like, you know, white liberals love Obama and, you know, because... Obama made them feel good about themselves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But if you really want the truth, you know, it's not it's not minorities job to make white people feel good about themselves. And this era has helped really is helping bring that into focus more. And just to to show that, you know, the problems didn't go away, even if we sweep them under the rug. We're still standing on that rug. Yeah. You know, it's funny because the world complains or uh, we often hear complaints about divisions and polarizing some things as if we're just all shouting playground taunts at each other. But I will contrast it with, and you and I talk a lot about our, our generations, which are fairly close, but I consider myself Generation X. And the complaint about Generation X was that we were apathetic, right? You never hear the youth described as apathetic anymore. Whatever. Right? Like, just like stoners who just don't give a shit. We just don't see them. So that's also been very interesting to really re-engage with politics. We're just Ethan Hawke and Winona Ryder sitting on a wall somewhere smoking a joint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I watched the the movie um, Being John Malkovich last night and just the weirdness of it, the weirdness of it, right? So, you know, and that weirdness can be brought to bear on politics. And I think that's probably where we need to sum up Trumpcast is that, you know, and not just to be funny or alarmist, but more to take some competence, some what Bandy Lee calls mental competence that people have because, and I'm thinking E. Jean Carroll and Mary Trump, I don't want to forget those two, that had been actually oppressed by the man Donald Trump. And because they had that, they had the moral imagination, right, to tell this story. And I think that's the tale of Trumpcast. If we accomplished anything, it was to surface those voices that really can, I know it's a cliche, speak truth to power. So Melissa, what's next for you? I'm glad you asked. So I have a few things in development. I'd love for people to find out by following me on Twitter at MSCulprit. That's Miss culprit. I love, I love that Twitter handle. And I'm going to give it again, just to be sure people see it. I hear it at MS culprit, like Ms. Culprit at MS culprit. Well worth following. Thank you. Please follow Melissa and also their music. Melissa is a great musician. If you like the music and the sound content of this show, that is all Melissa. Melissa, where can we find your music? Oh, Virginia, you're way too kind. I don't know what to do with myself. Thank you for all of your kind words. Just to be clear, 
Uh, I do make sound decisions for the show, but a majority of the songs are not mine. I've put in a few songs I've written, but most of these are other people's fine works. You can hear my music on Patreon at Fast Earth Music. So that's patreon.com slash Fast Earth Music. I play a bunch of instruments, mostly guitar, but some accordion, and I'm working on doing live streaming shows and things like that. I've written a musical and I like to geek out and try new things. So thanks, Virginia. That is awesome. And I can't wait to hear what you do next in podcasts. I have a secret idea of what might be next, but I'm keeping it under wraps for now. Yes. Well, enough about me, Virginia. People want to know what's next for you. Well, first of all, please follow my Substack. It's virginiaheffernan.substack.com. Easy to find. And then in the short term, I'm working on, I can't wait to announce this, a project with the folks at Lawfare that you might call After Trumpcast. It'll be a limited podcast based on the book After Trump by Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith, two Trumpcast guests, on what kinds of reforms and policy changes are needed after this era. Stay tuned on the at Lawfare Twitter handle for more details on that in the coming days. I love Lawfare. I'm so glad that you're working with them. Thank you. We have had Ben Wittes of Lawfare on this show many times and Susan Hennessy. Um, so a lot of you will recognize the voice of this show. I'm the narrator. I think it's going to be very cool and exciting. And after that, I have another big project in the works that I also can't talk about, but let's just say that it will leave politics where they belong in Washington, D.C., and it'll move us to culture. So I'm, I'm, as they say, I'm thrilled about that project, and I can't wait to tell you more. I'm at page 88 on Twitter. Please follow me. Virginia Heffernan, thank you so much for doing what you've done and keeping us all sane these past few years, keeping me sane personally. And thank you for coming on to Trumpcast. Melissa, you are the heart and soul of this show, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart for making it. So for the last time, that's it for today's show. Find us on Twitter for updates on our next shows. I'm at page 88. Our producer, Melissa, is at MS Culprit. And the show, so you can see the very last words of the show, is at Real Trumpcast. Before we end, I gotta thank the great John D. Domenico, our voice of Donald Trump, who read the tweets with a plum since the beginning of the show. And thanks to the executive producer of Trumpcast, that's Alicia Montgomery. She's been fantastic and has helped shepherd Trumpcast into a soft landing today. Thank you, Slate and Slate Plus members, for joining us in this crazy journey and making it happen. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered, and I should say beautifully engineered, ever since the pandemic hit, my wonderful boyfriend Richard Stanislaw has jumped into the breach to engineer the show, and I'm hugely grateful to him for this and all other things. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. I practically invented podcasting, and this show should remain on the air. I'll write tweets just for this show. We don't need Twitter. We don't need Twitter. No one even knew who Jacob Weisberg was before me. No one knew who 
a Virginia Heffernan was. No one knew Virginia Heffernan. Now she's a big star. She's a big star in all the on all the networks, and that's because of me. I'm really going to miss this show, especially that hack comedian, John Domenico, who read my tweets. John Domenico was a total nobody until he started reading my tweets on the Trumpcast. And how does he thank me? Well, he didn't. He didn't thank me. Trumpcast, you will be missed because I'll miss anything that had my name on it and now doesn't. Like the show, Buildings... Golf courses, my daughter Ivanka, ice skating rinks, history. By the way, did I make any money on this show since you used my name? Because I'm about $400 million in debt, and that's going to double in about a month. Okay, Trumpcast, I guess this is it. Are you sure you don't want to stick around for the second impeachment? The ratings are going to be through the roof. Through the roof.